If you knew that Jesus was going to come back in one month's time, how would you live for that month? What would you focus on during those weeks? What would your attitudes be? Well, we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. But we are called to be ready when he does come. Last week we saw that God's people are called to expectant living. We're to live expectantly as we wait for his return. And our passage this evening gives us some guidance for expectant living. We come this evening to the final section of 1 Thessalonians. And in these last verses, Paul does not say all that could be said on this subject, but what he does say is crucial. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1188, and I'll read from verse 12, as you can see on the screen, down to verse 28, the end of the letter. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's word. As Paul closes this letter to end time people, Paul teaches us about our responsibilities and about our source of confidence. First of all, our responsibilities. Paul mentions three, beginning with our responsibility toward leaders which we could sum up as appreciative cooperation. Look again at verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Paul is talking about church leaders here. When he says acknowledge your leaders, he doesn't just mean acknowledge they exist. The sense is appreciate them. 
And then Paul describes the leaders. He says they work hard among you, or at least they're supposed to. Paul is not calling the church to appreciate lazy leaders. He assumes leaders will be giving themselves wholeheartedly to the work. And hard work is not always the same as busy work. Sometimes church leaders can be busy because they're avoiding the hard work of prayer and ministry of the word. Working hard at those things will sometimes require saying no to other things. Then in my new NIV, the next phrase says, they care for you in the Lord. Actually, the old NIV was better. Some of you have that. It says they are over you in the Lord. Now, certainly church leaders must care for the church body. But the point here is they are over the body they're to care for. They've been given authority. Now, we have to be careful to understand this correctly. Leaders in the church are not better than anyone else in the church. Leaders are weak and they're prone to sin, just like everybody else in the church. Leaders are not on some kind of upper level when it comes to the Christian life. And church leaders are not little emperors either. They're not little sovereigns who can do things their way. You'll notice that verse 12 says the leadership they exercise is in the Lord. So they'd better lead the Lord's way. Ephesians chapter 4 says Jesus gave pastors and teachers as gifts to the church. Again, that is not because they're a cut above everybody else. It's simply because leaders are needed to equip God's people for works of service. Leadership is needed, and God gives certain men responsibility to lead. In 1 Peter, the situation is described like a shepherd taking care of sheep. Paul writes to elder, Peter writes to elders in that letter, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. And in that same passage, Peter describes Jesus as the chief shepherd. Ultimately, it is his church. We saw that this morning. Jesus is our good shepherd. But elders lead as under-shepherds. And we will answer to Christ for how we shepherd his flock. I once challenged someone about their disobedience to God. And their response was, what has it got to do with you? It's between me and God. That person was missing the point that God has made it the business of church leaders to shepherd his flock. We will never do it perfectly. There will always be big room for improvement. But the lives of church members have most certainly got to do with church leaders. And that is why Paul adds in verse 12, these leaders admonish you. Church leaders are not here to tell the church what the church wants to hear. 
Now, certainly it is crucial that leaders are accountable to others. But ultimately, the church leader answers to God. And that means he will sometimes say things you don't want to hear. That's what it means to admonish. It means warning and correcting. In verse 13, Paul says, Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And I would add to that, pray for them. Pray for Robert Morris and myself. And for Steve Hope as he joins us. Pray we will be faithful to do what God has called us to do. Pray that we serve the Lord and not ourselves. Pray we'll have all the wisdom and the courage and the tenderness that we need. That's probably the most loving thing you can do for your church leaders. Certainly in his letters, Paul often asks the churches for prayer. He asks for it here down in verse 25. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. We are weak men. We desperately need God's power to work through us. Pray for us. And give your cooperation to the work. At the end of verse 13, I think Paul is describing one way the church is to cooperate with the leaders. Live in peace with each other. It is a shame when the energy of church leaders is taken up dealing with Christians who are at each other's throats. But in contrast to that, when each member makes it their personal aim to live at peace with the other members, then the leader's energy can go into building up the church and reaching beyond the church to the world outside. And just to be clear, when Paul says live in peace, he means work at getting along with each other. He doesn't mean try to pretend that you get along. And he is not talking about the kind of uneasy peace that comes when people just avoid each other, sitting at opposite sides of the church, for example. And then Paul goes straight on to expand on this point. In verses 14 and 15, he sets out our responsibility toward one another. We could sum this up as sensitive, selfless involvement with one another. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now Paul is talking to the church body. This is not just what the leaders are to be doing. Church members are not spectators. At least they are not supposed to be. It's to the church members, Paul says, warn those who are idle and disruptive. And the emphasis here is on the disruptiveness. Paul is talking about people who are not just idle, 
They're actually using their idleness to be busy doing the wrong things. There's a connection between laziness and disruptiveness. And this is something Paul will expand on in 2 Thessalonians. Apparently, it was an ongoing issue for this church. And it can still be an ongoing issue. Very often, those who are the most disruptive in the church are those who do the least serving in the church. We see that same pattern outside the church. Those who aren't using their time and energy in positive ways, don't we see that they will tend to use it in negative ways? Now, it's an unfortunate fact that not everyone can find paid employment. But the main issue here is not paid employment. Paul is not saying warn those who can't find a paid job. He's saying, warn those who are not using their time in constructive ways. And surely the implication is, alongside the warning, we should be suggesting ways they could use their time well. That's something I think we need to develop as a church. Providing useful service opportunities for those in the church who have time on their hands. Maybe as you listen to this, the Holy Spirit is prodding you with ideas about how we could do that. You could bring those ideas to the elders. And there is another application here. If you find yourself often coming up with lots to criticize in the church, maybe it's time to ask, could I use that energy serving in the church instead? I think it was the evangelist D.L. Moody who was on a train once. Another passenger in the train recognized him and said, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you do evangelism. D.L. Moody said, well, I'm not completely satisfied with it myself. How do you do your evangelism? The man had to admit that actually he didn't do any. So Moody replied, well then, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it. If we find ourselves or in ourselves a tendency to be critical and negative, maybe the solution is to pour that energy into positive service. And a place to start is when you feel the urge to criticize, pull out the prayer diary and pray for the church instead. Paul goes on with our responsibility toward one another. In verse 14 he says, encourage the disheartened, help the weak. It's very easy for us every week to walk through the doors here and to focus on ourselves. When we come here, all of us have things going on in our lives. Sometimes we come in with a spring in our step because things are going well. Sometimes it's all we can do to just drag ourselves here. And so it's understandable that each of us comes focusing on our own situation. Maybe we come just bursting to pour out our praise to God for his goodness. Maybe we come desperately wanting to hear from God. 
longing for him to lift us up. But here Paul is calling us to learn the discipline of looking beyond ourselves. He's calling us to look around, to notice the sad face that's on our brother or sister. Or maybe the angry face, or the lonely face. That is a discipline. To look around for the person we can minister to. And after we have spoken to that person and heard from them on a Sunday, we can give them a text or a phone call in the week. Let them know we haven't forgotten. How about inviting that same person around for a meal? When we've done the bunch for lunch, it's been very helpful that Alan has reminded us our hospitality does not have to be five star. We don't have to set aside a whole day to clean the house. We don't have to call in Jimmy Oliver before we dare to have someone around. It's liberating to realize we can just give a guest what we normally eat. In our house, we normally have sandwiches on Sunday. So baked potatoes was quite a step up for us, actually. And what does Paul have in mind when he says we're to help the weak? What kind of weakness is he talking about? Well, I think he intentionally leaves it open-ended. It could be physical or mental weakness. It could be financial weakness. It could be weakness in the face of a particular temptation. And we don't have to have magical solutions to people's problems. Sometimes that holds us back from saying anything because we don't know what to say. But we can listen and we can promise to pray for them and we can pray for them. We may find we're able to help in a whole variety of other ways according to the situation. All of us can help in some way. Maybe through a card with something God has encouraged us with from our own Bible reading. And Paul adds to this, be patient with everyone. Paul knows it's not always easy to warn and encourage and help our brothers and sisters. Not everyone will respond well when we try to help. And often our brothers and sisters will continue to struggle. Often they will not magically triumph over their problem, whatever it is. We have to be patient. We have to be willing to go on and on, warning and encouraging and helping. And when the occasion demands it, we have to be willing to set aside our desire to retaliate. Sometimes our brothers and sisters will do us wrong. But look again at verse 15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. We probably all try to live out the first part of verse 15. We understand that we're supposed to try and hold ourselves back from retaliation. But what about the second half of the verse? 
in that same situation where we want to retaliate, can we instead try to actively do what is good for the person who has wronged us? That is not easy. But that is what we are called to do. At this point, you may be thinking, thanks, that's enough to be getting on with. Don't make my to-do list any longer. But Paul has more to say. And in fact, the next set of responsibilities are crucial to all of this. They are what helps us to fulfill the previous responsibilities. In verses 16 to 22, Paul deals with our responsibility toward God. First of all, he says we're to trust his goodness and power. Look at verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How do we find the resources for appreciative cooperation toward our leaders? How do we find the resources for sensitive, selfless involvement with our brothers and sisters? We look to God. If we don't, our love and concern and service for others is going to wear thin very, very quickly. Our love and service for others will only be as strong as our convictions about God's goodness and power. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says this. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If we trust those words, if we trust that in every situation God is working for our good, then we will be able on some level to rejoice in every situation and pray in every situation and give thanks in every situation. We are not going to enjoy every situation. But God has promised that he is always working for our good. Even the things that do not feel good are for our good. That is a reason to rejoice and to give thanks. The more we begin to see life through the lens of God's promise, the more we will trust his goodness and power. And the more we'll be able to persevere in our service. Trusting God leads us to see that difficult situations and difficult people are not things we're to run from. God uses even those things to work for our good. To change us and make us grow. So the secret to persevering in service is not just to grit our teeth and try harder. It's to stop and look up. To remember the God who has saved us. To remember that that same God is working to change us. And he's also coming back for us. The 
There's a hymn that says, A mind at perfect peace with God. Oh, what a word is this. A sinner reconciled through blood. This, this indeed is peace. And we can find peace when we stop and remember that we are reconciled to God. When we pause to rejoice in that peace we have with God, that's where we find the refreshment to keep on serving Him. And that's one reason prayer is so vital for us. It causes us to stop and to look up. It reminds us where we put our trust. Our responsibility toward God also involves being both open and discerning with regard to the Spirit's work. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. Paul is so balanced here. He knows some of us are so jumpy about the work of the Holy Spirit that we can become closed off to his work entirely. And Paul knows others of us are just gullible when it comes to the Spirit. We lack discernment. So if someone tells us the Spirit washed off their tattoos in the shower or gave them gold teeth, we'll buy it. And I've heard people say both of those things. Paul has the balance that we all need to find. He calls us first to be open to the work of the Spirit. We mustn't become so rigid in our planning and so set in our ways that we quench the Spirit. And I think that as we think about applying this, it goes much deeper than just saying our services on Sunday need to be more free and easy. It's much deeper than that. Surely the Holy Spirit can guide us just as well while we're planning a service as he can guide us during a service. Can't he guide us while we're preparing during the week? Can the Spirit only work between 11 and 12 and 6 and 7 on Sundays? Can the Spirit only guide us when we're standing at the front and our mouths are open? Surely he can also guide us before we open our mouths. So surely being open to the Spirit is about a body of God's people who day after day and week after week discipline themselves to listen carefully to God's word. Month after month, they allow the Holy Spirit to use God's word to shape their thinking and change their attitudes and guide their plans. I think that's a much more authentic form of openness to the Spirit than the kind of openness to the Spirit that says, well, we never know what's going to happen in our church on Sunday. And yes, when a church is genuinely open to being led by the Spirit, God will sometimes give very specific guidance. Here Paul says, do not treat prophecies with contempt. 
As far as I can see, New Testament prophecy happens when God works through his written word. He works to give a specific application of his written word. So standing up and preaching is not exactly the same as prophesying. But as preaching applies God's word, as the preacher tries to show how this word applies to this situation, then there can be an element of prophecy. And that can also come as small groups and individuals study God's word. The Holy Spirit can bring a specific application of that word. He doesn't add to his word, but he does apply it to specific situations. One example would be the way God guided those who planted this church 40 years ago. This did not happen just because someone had a good idea one day. It happened because over time, the Spirit said to a group of people, I will build my church here, in this village, and I'll use you to do it. God's general promise to build his church took on a specific application. God said, I will build it here. The church that's genuinely open to the Spirit is the church that disciplines itself to pray continually, both privately and together, and to carefully listen to God's Word privately and together. That church will be led by the Spirit. I think this helps us understand what Paul has in mind when he follows verse 20 with verses 21 and 22. Verse 20 says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. Now we know that the church in Corinth gave opportunity for words of prophecy to be shared publicly. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But in that same passage, Paul insisted those words were to be weighed carefully. And I don't see any reason we should restrict that to 30 seconds during a church service. Now certainly sometimes five seconds is enough to realize a prophecy is false. If it contradicts what God has said in his written word, it's obviously false. But in many cases, longer time will be needed to evaluate something. In fact, what Paul says here suggests a longer period for weighing a prophecy. Here he says, test them. That could involve weeks or months of praying about the point that's been raised. The New Testament never tells us we should accept something as being from the Spirit just because someone says it's from the Spirit. The words the Spirit told me should never be enough to end the discussion. Some of you know very well those words the Spirit told me have often been used to manipulate people. As Paul says here, some of what comes to us under the name of the Holy Spirit is good, and some of it is actually evil. 
It's not from the Holy Spirit at all. Part of our responsibility toward God is to be both open and discerning with regard to the Spirit's work. We do not honor God when we close ourselves off to the Spirit. And we do not honor God by blindly accepting everything that comes to us under the label of the Holy Spirit. Here at the end of the letter, it's obvious Paul is bursting to see these believers again. He has so much to tell them. So much guidance to give them. And so far, he's had lots to say about their responsibilities in this passage. But he closes by pointing them away from themselves. He points them again to our source of confidence. God who sanctifies and keeps us. Look at verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. It's important for us to be reminded of our responsibilities. But we can never stop there. If we did stop there, we'd all collapse in despair. We know our own hearts. We know our weakness and our failure. Paul knows it too. So he points us to the one who is at work in us. Sanctifying us. What does that mean? Well, it means set apart for God's use. Useful to him. The same word can be translated holy. And in one sense, we have been sanctified. We have been set apart for God. We've been given the gift of Jesus' holiness. It's wrapped around us like a robe. God looks at us and he sees us as holy, sanctified. And according to the New Testament, in another sense, we are being sanctified. Until the day we see Jesus, he is at work in us to make us more like himself, more holy. All of that is God's work. He is forming us and molding us. And he will keep us. It is because of him that one day we'll stand blameless in front of Jesus our King. That will not be because of us. We trust in his faithfulness, not our own. And as Paul says in verse 28, we can rely on his grace to us every day of our lives. As we close, we're going to ask God to continue his work in us. We're going to sing, O great God, and then with a prayer you fed the hungry.